This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings Gothamites, Lane here. Welcome to episode 23 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. It is an exciting episode because not only are we starting a new book, book number three, but I also have a guest co-host for the season. You know him from the I Read Movies podcast, a monthly podcast all about movie TV novelizations. So please welcome to the show, Paxton Holly. Pax, thank you so much for joining me this season. Hello, Lane. Hello, Lane's listeners. Thank you for letting me join the party this season. Absolutely. I haven't had a long-term co-host ever, and I'd started to at the very beginning with my friend G, but our schedules just never synced up. So this is great. I'm happy to have you along for the ride. Well, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. So the novelization we're covering is the 92, that is the year it was made, right? 92? 92. Batman Returns, written by Craig Shaw Gardner, who, if you remember, wrote the 89 Batman novelization as well. Uh, He did not, however, return for later sequels. Batman and Robin was written by Michael Jan Friedman, and Batman Forever was written by Peter David. But we're not talking about those. Uh, We're going to talk about this one, Batman Returns. If you've been with me before, you know that when I start a book, I give a little introduction to the author, but since we already discuss Craig Shaw Gardner in the first season, I thought it might be a good chance to discuss one of the other names on the cover, Daniel Waters, who is credited with the screenplay and co-writing the story with Sam Hamm. Um, I'm not going to dive real deep here. All this information is going to be from Wikipedia and IMDb, which is kind of sad because I am a librarian. My job is to research, but for some things, you just got to go shallow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Daniel Waters was born November 10th, 1962 in Cleveland, Ohio. So once again, Ohio represent, (laughs) and is the brother of director Mark Waters. Some of his screenwriting credits include Heathers, which I was very surprised about. I didn't know that either. And it won a 1990 Edgar Award. The other ones are The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Batman Returns, Hudson Hawk, and Demolition Man. Some of the trivia on the IMDb page, because that is usually my favorite part, he owns the home that Orson Welles died in. So I hope he is haunted by Orson Welles' ghost because that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> It'd be cool, but that would be a bizarre ghost for sure. <laughs> Most of the female characters in Heathers were somewhat based upon his sister when she was in high school. He wrote the screenplay for Heathers while working in a video store, which is kind of cool. And Tim Burton wanted him to contribute to the screenplay for Batman Forever after seeing his Heathers movie. So it's kind of cool that he just was working, you know, minimum wage at a video store. And then next thing you know, he's being uh, requested by Tim Burton. Yeah, totally. And how many how many of these creators are working in video stores and then get found? I mean, that is insane. 
It's such a fluke, those who get discovered and make it big and the stars align and they're wonderful and talented, but they're certainly like for every one that really makes it, there's probably 20, if not more, that just kind of go undiscovered. True. So, and I'm one of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, a quote on IMDb, he says that Heather's was my response to the way the media and other films treated teenagers. They didn't seem to have a clue as to what young people were about and how they acted. Films often portray teenagers as the innocent victims of a cruel society. I've always felt that young people were born with a lot of the evil in them already. I wrote Heathers with the idea that most teens are not innocent victims and that it's a cruel world from day one. And I'm not sure how much I agree with that philosophy, <laughs> being born evil, but yeah, there you have it. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting because all the movies you listed, which I didn't realize he did those, you know, like Ford Fairlane, Heathers, um, that, and even Batman Returns, they all have this kind of acerbic tone to them, like this kind of a bite to their writing. And they totally, I can see now that they're from the same type of a writer. Yeah. And we kind of get into that in even the prologue when we have this baby that was born evil, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, so speaking of the prologue, you ready to dive in? Yes, let's do. Prologue. Gotham City isn't safe anymore. It's crowded, noisy, dirty, filled with garbage. And I'm not just talking discarded needles and deadly chemicals that just happen to fall into the river. I'm talking human scum, too. Grifters and drunks and addicts, hookers and dealers and petty thieves. Guys who will mug you if you step into the wrong street and shoot you if you try to call for help. And sometimes things are so busy and crowded and noisy that you can't tell the scum from the rest of your neighbors. Gotham City isn't safe anymore. Why can't somebody clean it up? If only it could be like it was yesterday, when everybody had bright, smiling faces and believed in the American dream and the value of a dollar. Back in the 50s, when people knew their place and kept their problems to themselves. So, in the prologue, we have an as-yet-unnamed narrator telling us that Gotham City isn't safe anymore. Uh, I'm not sure when it was. Safe, you had that was the but... exact same thought I had. I was like, I don't think Gotham was ever <laughs> safe. <laughs> yeah, maybe back when it was like a fur trapping. <laughs> maybe, uh, yeah, yeah. Then. I mean, even then, I mean, I think it wasn't Jonah Hex, the DC character, was in Gotham back in the Wild West, and it wasn't even safe then. So I don't know. Where, I don't know when it's supposed to be safe. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we were on the same page with that one. The narrator pines for the 1950s when people, quote, knew their place and kept their problems to themselves, uh, which can be a problematic ideal mm -hmm. when you are thinking about people knowing their place. Let's see. The narrator tells us of a scene in the early 1950s, a few months before Christmas. A wealthy man paces nervously while his wife delivers their new baby in the other room. So do you have any notes about the tone of the this prologue so uh, far? I mean, it's interesting because it's told differently than any of the other chapters with this narrator. And it finishes weird, too. So, I mean, when we come to the end, it's going to be weird. But uh, it's this weird third-party narrator that's kind of just telling us what's going on. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. I mean, most of this book is surprisingly com comedically dark. And, uh, like, it, this really sets the tone here uh, when we see sort of the origin of the uh, penguin here. Uh, we really see this tone starting from the beginning. Even though, like, this narration is probably eventually going to be from Penguin's point of view, it's kind of sinister from the get-go. It, it was kind of like a, a weird juxtaposition between, like, your, your normal omniscient narrator to, like, wait a minute, this narrator's kind of creepy. Yeah, very much. So, back to the delivery... There is a sudden silence, 
and there's something wrong about the Goo Goos and Gagas, which kind of struck me, and I looked it up, and according to Healthline.com, a baby doesn't even start to coo until six to eight weeks of age. <laughs> so the fact that this child is Goo Gooing and Gagaing is in itself right. wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that tells you the, ba- the baby's not right. The door opens, and a nurse comes out, and her face is just blank and shock. And then the doctor comes out, who is also shocked. So unable to wait anymore, the father rushes in, and when he sees what his wife has birthed, he screams. The narrator brings us up a few months after this to Christmas time, and the house is done up in the old 1950s holiday decorations, so no giant inflatable decorations <laughs> there. I'm thinking more of like, you know, the glass bulbs right. and the... Which is kind of interesting, a couple of the times that I went to England was usually over winter break from work. And one thing I liked about their Christmas decorations over there is it's it's very kind of quaint and subtle. Like you just see a lot of the, the green garland with white lights on it and some red bows. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of makes you think of uh, Charles Dickens or something. Right, right. And this was like the 50s too, yeah. So everything's going to be more like understated. And they're rich. They're not, yeah, you're right. They're not going to have these giant blow up things. Yeah. <laughs> the baby is there, but it's playpen- Apparently it looks a little bit more like a cage, but you know this. Apparently the baby tends to get into some mischief. But despite being in a cage, mischief presents itself when the family cat wanders a bit too close. The baby grabs the cat and dispatches of the cat. This always fascinated me. This part uh, in the movie, and uh, I, I I just uh, introduced this to my kids last summer, and it was kind of fascinating to them as well. It was always my read of this. And even in the book helped a little bit, but uh, I my read was always that the the baby took the cat and then ate the cat. For some reason, that was my read of that scene forever. That's what I thought here too. I wasn't sure. I guess this is a good part talk about our our differences in our history with the movie because you watched it fairly recently, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a commentary episode on your podcast, I haven't seen this since it was on VHS, kind of like the old Batman movie. But that one, it was my Batman was the first one, and I watched that all the time. Batman Returns, I feel like I might have only watched it a couple times. So there's a lot in this that I don't remember whatsoever. Yeah, I, I watched it uh, for the first time in many years last summer, and then that same summer I introduced it to my kids, and they loved it. So we wound up have we've watched it a couple times since then. So I, I'm fairly uh, familiar with it. Apparently, this is the last straw for the cats. Or, yeah, for the parents. <laughs> <laughs> the last cat straw too. For the, cat the cat too. as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so they take the baby out for a walk in a beautiful winter night where carolers can be heard. So it's like this weird juxtaposition of like the beautiful night and the carolers, and you just know that the the parents are about to do something a little unsavory. So they go to, or they're pushing the carriage. And it's apparently a wicker monstrosity with leather straps to keep the baby in place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the book makes sure to mention to keep it hidden from other, from other people. Right. They go to the bridge, and after making sure they are all alone, they throw the carriage with the cat-murdering infant into the roaring stream below. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this this gets pretty dark. I mean, thinking about the baby doing his shenanigans, but then the the parents taking their own baby and throwing him into the river. Yeah. I mean, this is I mean, this is a pretty dark imagery to begin this book. Compared to the book I just finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> not not as bad maybe as that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, when I think of stream, I think of like a small, shallow body of water. Right, that would not float a wicker monstrosity. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I would never contribute the word roaring with a stream. Correct. So it might just be a semantics type of thing. but So the carriage is carried on the stream to darker, fouler parts of Gotham City until it washes up on an island of ice. Some kind of ice flow or something floating off of uh, Gotham Harbor. I don't know. And this part... Okay. So four emperor penguins come down to the baby. Emperor penguins are native to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's odd that they are... Off the coast of pseudo New York, Gotham City. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, the book doesn't reveal where he is, and uh, I mean, we ultimately know where he winds up. So, I mean, okay. it's, un it's under the zoo, so that's where these gotcha. penguins have come from. So, but yeah, it's very confusing because I mean, they have they have him trolling through the under sewers of. I mean, it's interesting that the sewers go directly into right under the sewer, uh, right under the zoo to begin with. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of interesting Moses imagery as well. I mean, with, you know, this evil kid that gets thrown into the river and is going down river. Um, but instead of saving the kid, they're trying to get rid of the kid. And, you know, and it's it's kind of this reverse Moses imagery. Mm -hmm. um, and then he comes up under the zoo and you got these penguins. I mean, it, it's a bizarre beginning uh, to this book. I was wondering about, you know, if there was some kind of zoo or something like that being involved here because I was very much confused. But I did look a little bit up about emperor penguins. They reach a height of 3.6 to 4.3 feet. Hmm. So that's a little taller than I thought they were. Yeah. So that's, it kind of gives me a whole new respect for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's taller than I thought they got too. They have a lifespan of 20 years and weigh about 50 pounds. Hmm. At the end of the prologue, we learn that this baby is now grown up. Gotham City is no longer safe as if it ever was oh, yeah and that the narrator was probably the penguin which which is weird to me because i didn't feel like the i felt like the last little bit at the end where we find out it's the penguin i didn't feel like it was the penguin up to that point yeah i wasn't sure i went back and forth and even with that little bit at the end I, i'm still not 100 percent sure if he's kind of doing this as an autobiographical type of thing, or if it's just this unseen narrator kind of getting a little bit into his thoughts. So I don't know. Do you think it's the penguin for sure? Definitely at the end. I still, like you said, it was. it's confusing to me why he would talk the way he did for the beginning of the chapter, but then all of, all of a sudden switch and now he's first person penguin now. Um, it, it just seemed an odd way to talk. But like you said, maybe he's doing this autobiographically for some reason. It, from this point on, it stays pretty much first person penguin when he's down in the sewers. So, I mean, considering he, as far as we know, at this point, he was born and raised or raised in the sewers by penguins or something. It's amazing that he has any linguistic ability at all. True. That is a good point. <laughs> So anything else before we move on to chapter one? <laughs> it's an interesting start to this book so far. <laughs> yeah. Chapter one, scene one. Christmas time again. It happens every year. But today, things are different. Today, there's Batman. There's a proud father now, showing a sled with the bat on it to his wife. Oops, have to hide that present, because here comes Junior. And farther out in Gotham City Plaza, there's an adorable little girl who pulls open her precious little purse and pulls out a dollar. A whole dollar to give to the Santa Claus collecting for the Salvation Army. It's all pretty sweet, isn't it? People are shopping and caroling and smiling and even skating down at the ice rink set up for the season. And look, right here in front of us, a young man gives a young woman a poinsettia. And what a kiss she gives him back. Christmas cheer is everywhere, isn't it? 
Pretty goddamn sweet. Don't worry. Sweetness can't last forever. Things will get much better very soon. Okay, so chapter one is one of the very short chapters. The narration style at first kind of leads you to believe that it's the same narrator as the prologue. Right. And we also learn that Batman has already begun to market his brand. At least I'm assuming because it's Christmas time and there's a kid with a bat-themed sled. That's right, yeah. So he he's trademarking his image. He's I mean that's how Bruce Wayne became rich. Yeah, I guess he's making deals with local toy stuff, toy shops, putting out stuff. I guess <laughs> M- meeting with like the CEO of McDonald's in his costume. <laughs> I get ten percent. <laughs> and when my movies come out, I want the chicken nuggets to be that shaped. <laughs> Non-negotiable. <laughs> so there's a little girl who gives a dollar to the Salvation Army. And a young man who gives a young woman a poinsettia, and she kisses him, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then we have a snow bunny, quote-unquote, who has a tiara and a banner that reads Ice Princess. She asks for Gotham City's attention, and apparently the the Gothamites were eager to give her the attention, because everyone just pays attention to her immediately, which tells you now that this is a work of fiction. (laughs) Totally. Uh, With a press of a button, Gotham Plaza Christmas tree lights lights up much to the crowd's delight and for some reason when we are reading this part about the gotham plaza christmas tree lights for some reason i was wondering i wonder if gotham city has its own version of the macy's thanksgiving day parade and i can just picture people like vicky vale being on camera and talking about the floats as they go by and that's true and and (laughs) i didn't even think about that but i wonder i wonder if they did and then it was ruined by the joker's little parade (laughs) in the last movie so exactly (laughs) So then at the the end, the narrator tells us of a face that is looking through a sewer grate, which reminds him of his barred playpen or his wicker carriage when it was thrown into the water. This is this is why I like uh, novelizations. Like, I never got that imagery until I read this novelization about him, because these first parts, we only see him looking out of the sewers. And then the book calls out that it's like him looking out of that cagey crib that he was in or looking out through the wicker that like I didn't get that you know kind of mirrored imagery and uh, I'm glad the book pointed it out because I mean it's totally there even though technically he shouldn't have any memories of that because he was only a few months old (laughs) but he was cooing and and goo-gooing and gagaing on his way out the birth canal so he's uh, advanced he's totally advanced yeah (laughs) (laughs) chapter two scene one a butler's work was never done Alfred dodged and wove his way through the Christmas-time shoppers with the ease of a seasoned veteran. He had performed these sort of errands for more than 40 years, first for Thomas Wayne and his wife, and then, after that couple's tragic death, for their growing son, Bruce. On these last days before the holiday, he would fetch the Christmas goose, a few new ornaments for the tree, and perhaps some small presents for friends and acquaintances of his employer. At least, he thought, in doing this, he could make life a little easier for Master Bruce. In these last few months, Bruce Wayne had had certain other things on his mind. So we move on to chapter two, which is compared to chapter one, a you know, fairly sizable chapter, not huge. Right. Now, the first scene is from Alfred's point of view. We learn that Alfred has been a butler now for 40 years. So he has no trouble running errands such as fetching a Christmas goose or a few new ornaments and perhaps some gifts for friends and acquaintances. And I thought, oh, okay. But then I read that it, they're not his friends and acquaintances. It's for his <laughs> employer. And I'm like, oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Wayne Manor is so terribly understaffed. 
Alfred has no time for friends or acquaintances because he's doing all the shopping. He's the chauffeur. He's the right hand man in the back cave. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got to do all the stuff for Bruce. So of mm-hmm. course, he's not going to have time for his own stuff. And, and I, it is interesting to see him out doing all the shopping. And I, and I thought the book tried to make a mention that uh, Bruce wasn't with him because he was, you know, uh, I think this was the time of the year. And, like he was remembering his parents or something. So like that's why he wasn't out. But uh, I feel like he's not out because he doesn't do the shopping. That's why. He's yeah. Not <laughs> so there's a, a paper boy who is peddling newspapers that have a headline of penguin man or myth or something worse. Paperboy asks Alfred if he wants a paper, and Alfred pretty much quashes him flat. And did he just see something moving in that sewer grate? Nah, just a reflection of Christmas lights. Well, I like the headline. I love the the Penguin Man headlines. And then, if I remember correctly, in the movie, the image on the headline looked like like a Bigfoot picture. You know, it like <laughs> it's like a fuzzy kind of Bigfoot picture, if I remember correctly. And that the, the headline totally calls that out too. That's um, funny. But yeah, yeah, and I like that. Um, Alfred somehow sees him in the sewer grate because I don't know how often I would ever see anything in a sewer grate like that. I was thinking <laughs> that because there, you know, throughout this chapter, the first couple of chapters, there are a couple people who kind of catch something in the sewer grate, and yep. I'm I was sitting here thinking. When was the last time I paid any attention whatsoever to what is in a sewer grate? And you know, with my training in martial arts, I had a little bit of situational awareness. But I mm-hmm. thought, man, Penguin could have taken me out. <laughs> totally. I mean, I have I have no martial arts training, so I would be completely a goner. If that <laughs> Chapter 2, Scene 2. Who did the mayor think Max was? Some kind of ordinary citizen? Max Shrek told himself to calm down. The mayor had arrived here in the Shrek corporate offices, after all, even if it had been hours after he had been summoned. And, Max reminded himself, he had to be pleasant to this windbag politician, at least until the mayor gave him what he wanted. So the second scene, um, it's from the point of view of a guy named Max Shrek, who is apparently upset with the mayor. Shrek is... Love, Shrek is life. Uh, Shrek (laughs) is one of the... I guess, CEO or something of some department store. Yeah. And they're up in the corporate offices with the mayor who's looking down at, well, hell, let's let's take a look at what he's seeing on the stage of. Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present That Time Selena Kyle Had a Suggestion. Well, here's hoping, knock wood, Gotham might just have its first Merry Christmas in a good long while. I feel almost vulgar in this Yuletide context about mentioning the new power plant, but if we're going to break ground when we've got to break ground, I need permits, variances, tax incentives, that kind of pesky nonsense. Power plant? Max, our studies show that Gotham has enough energy to sustain growth into the next century. Your analysts are talking growth at 1% per annum. That's not growth, that's a mild swelling. I'm planning ahead for a revitalized Gotham City, so we can light the whole plaza without worrying about brownouts. Do you like the sound of brownouts? Do you? Imagine a Gotham City of the future lit up like a blanket of stars, but blinking on and off, embarrassingly low on juice. Frankly, I cringe, Mr. Mayor. Dad, Mr. Mayor, it's time to go downstairs and bring joy to the masses. Sorry, you'll have to submit reports, blueprints, and plans through the usual committees. Through the usual channels. Um, I had a suggestion. Well, actually more, uh, just a question. I'm afraid we haven't properly housebroken Miss Kyle. 
In the plus column, though, she brews one hell of a cup of coffee. The mayor apparently does things above board, mm-hmm. so I have a feeling he's not going. He's not going to be very long for this world, <laughs> right? You can't in Gotham being above board. <laughs> yeah, no, it ain't, ain't going to happen. So again, I haven't seen Batman Returns for a very long. Literally, the only things I remember about this movie are uh, Selina Kyle becoming Catwoman and what the Penguin looks like. That that's it. That's all. I the only memories I have of that. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And um, he I mean, that is one of the, the clashes that Max, you know, has his own agenda that's going on and he's bumping up against the mayor. So that's where the big clashes come from. Mm-hmm. And at first I was confused about whose son Chip was because he says dad and then Mr. Mayor. And I, was, I thought he corrected. Oh. <laughs> at, at first I thought he was like that. I mean, Mr. Mayor. But I, I realized, saying. yeah, it, it took me a second. It took me a second read to figure out who whose kid he was but uh so the author lays it on a little thick with how slimy this shrek dude is right and he is also setting his son up to be a uh chip off the old block (laughs) (laughs) a a not so subtle (laughs) of of chip Uh (laughs) so yeah i will say we don't ever find out like I, I thought we'd find out in the book. It was always something I wondered, what was Selena's question? I'd like to know what she was going to ask. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it ever, it didn't come up in what we read for this episode. So Yeah, it never does um, here. And it doesn't in the movie either. It's just, I mean, I guess it's there to just show Max uh, completely humiliate her in front of everybody. Um, yeah. But I would have been interested to hear what she had to say. Mm-hmm. And that just shows how much of a, jerk we are not because we actually do want to hear what she has to say <laughs> right chapter two scene three selena looked at her disappearing boss what had she done corn dog chip smiled at her the kind of smile that probably melted college co-eds at his feet it was too bad the smile was as phony as chip's part-time job for his father thanks he said waving gallantly at the coffee tray anyway it's not the caffeine that gets us buzzed around here it's the obedience He favored her with one more of his winning smiles before he turned and strode out after his father. Okay, so the third scene of chapter two is from Selena's point of view. Uh, She watches Shrek leave, confused at what she's done. And okay, this got me. She apparently has, she mentally uses the term corndog as a curse. Yes, she does. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a bit, yes. So uh, Chip gives her a smile, but Selena can tell it's phony and... You know, he thanks her for the coffee and says, anyway, it's not the caffeine that gets us buzzed around here. It's the obedience. So just in case you didn't know that he was a slime ball, you know, that the author gives us a little another little layer there. Yeah. And and she makes the comment, uh, which is interesting, about how uh, Chip is fake in the same way that his job for his father is fake, too. I mm-hmm. thought that, that was an interesting little addition, too. Yeah. So he smiles and follows his father and the mayor out of the room. And once he leaves and Selena is alone, she just says, shut up, Chip. <laughs> and then berates herself for sticking her foot in her mouth again in front of her boss. And at this rate, she'll never get a promoted title of administrative assistant. And I think maybe in the early 90s was administrative assistant kind of like the new the new terminology for for that for like a secretary or receptionist yeah yes it was and that is that is that what she was saying okay because i when i read it i was reading that 
she was executive assistant and she was tell she was like i'm trying to convince him that i've earned it like she already had it but i i get what you're saying now like i i think i read it too forward i was like she hasn't reached that yet so she's trying to prove that she is worthy of getting that title i get it now. Well, possibly yeah i mean you might be right because so, i didn't even think about it uh, in that way too so i don't know well it totally no. makes sense that shrek's not going to give her that title for whatever reason he'll find some way to push that off over and over and over again so uh so i i totally see that read now okay so in this short little scene we get the phrase corn dog not one not two, <laughs> not three, but four times. Yeah. And it carries over into the movie. And it's a weird kind of exclamation to have. And I th- always thought that in the movie and seeing it here in the book as well. It's just, that's a weird thing to say. It's cute in what it is. It's just, I think it's probably going to end up being overdone. Yeah. I mean, and she is kind of portrayed as in this first part as being, in some respects, kind of infantile anyway. And that's kind of an infantile thing to say. Chapter two, scene four. As soon as Chip had caught up with them, Max took the mayor down the executive elevator, then guided him right through the first floor of Shrek's department store, so important to Gotham's economy. When Shrek's prospered, the city prospered too. The mayor knew that already, but Max figured it wouldn't hurt to remind him. They just happened to go out of the main door too, right by the large Shrek sign, featuring that happy Shrek cat that all of Gotham loved. All of Gotham. But the mayor should know that too. It was a symbol of everything Max stood for, and maybe a sign of even greater things to come. So the fourth scene, we move to Max's point of view. Chip, Max, and the mayor take the elevator down to the first floor, and that, that's where I learned that they're in a department store. <laughs> yeah. And again, department stores like were kind of booming back in the day when this was written as well. I'm sure larger cities still have things like that, but in smaller towns, it's uh, we, we're walmart land yeah like these big giant standalone department stores are like a thing of the past now but like i mean like you have walmart now but nothing like there used to be a bunch of different ones of these like macy's was one and these aren't around anymore but it's kind of still cool to think about so we learned that the store is important to gotham's economy and i'm like yeah maybe um i'm from a small town with a couple of like we have a big paper mill and we have a kenworth truck manufacturer that is important to us because like literally there's less than 25,000 people in my town. Gotham is apparently 10 million people strong. I don't see something like that being supported on the back of one company. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I think this is showing Shrek's sort of inflated vision of himself, of himself being the savior of Gotham and being like, I'm the one holding this whole city up, you know, and um, and like the whole reason the book mentions that he takes the mayor down through the department store uh, instead of just kind of going out the side is he wants to show him and remind him how important Shrek's is to Gotham. And it's all Shrek saying this, because like you said, this whole section is uh, in his in his own his own thoughts. So it's, you know, he's got he's got a bit of an inflated ego about himself and how he relates to Gotham. Yeah. And as I was saying that, I just kind of realized that what I missed, a company that that is holding Gotham up. Um, I guess Wayne Indi- in, in, yeah, Wayne Enterprises is a, a contender for that as well. But mm-hmm. at least with Wayne Enterprises, he kind of has his finger in many pies where Shrek's is one department store. So I don't know. I'm just kind of putting that out there. Yeah. 
So yeah, like you said, they a trio is met by the media when they exit the building, and Max sees a Salvation Army Santa, so he takes the opportunity for a photo op. He takes two bills out of his wallet. One is a 50, but the one beneath it was a single, which, yeah, that's okay. Like, 50 <laughs> bucks is still good. You know, Thank you. Thank you. Like, I, I read this... And uh, I was like, I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to set him up to be like, oh, I'm giving him two bills and one of them's a 50. And But then the guy looks at it and it's a one on the second one. And it's supposed to be like, haha, I totally ripped you off. But man, I've never given 50 bucks to a Santa. And yeah. uh, like, I mean, I think the Santa guy, the Santa guy reacts like, oh, that guy's a... That guy just cheated me. But I would think those guys in actuality would be like, man, awesome. I just got 51 bucks in one turn. So his son Chip tugs at his sleeve and tells his father to be careful not to step in the river of melting sludge. Max steps over it and when his eyes follow it, he thinks he sees something in the sewer. So again, there's the second person who sees something in the sewer. That one at least, though, his eyes are kind of following along something that's there. So that's a little bit more believable. Right. There's something that led him there to begin with. You're correct. Right. <laughs> he thinks that it looks like somebody holding an umbrella. And this, I thought, was actually cool. Like, I don't know if there are any iterations of Penguin that have him in a sewer. I'm kind of new with reading Batman comics. But I really kind of liked that this is kind of a reason he has an umbrella because of the wa- the water dripping down on him from the grating above. Huh. Yeah, I never thought about that. And, and no, there's not a lot of versions where he's in the sewer. Like that, it's unique to that one. And I mean, the whole mutated version of Penguin right. really, really kind of, this was the first time that was done as well. Um, but yeah, I didn't even think about that, that he's in the sewer. Of course, he's going to need an umbrella. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is. So anything else on chapter two? Uh, any comments about the movie that you can think of? Uh, no, we don't get the uh, Salvation Army scene. That was one that's strictly on the novelization. And I've it's always stuck out to me. Okay. Chapter three, scene one. Corn dog. Selena looked at the post-it notes tacked onto her computer. Reminders that would help her fit in. Help her to get ahead in the competitive world of Shrek Industries. Don't get jokes, said one. Max didn't like it when she got too clever. Save it for your diary, read another. The upper echelon here at Shrek didn't want to hear about her problems. In fact, they didn't want to hear about anything except making money. So chapter three is the first scene is from Selena's point of view again, and we start right off with a corn dog. <laughs> um, should we turn this into a drinking game? <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, we should. We got to keep tallies of how often. It's like. <laughs> we see that Selena has post-it notes to kind of help her improve her chances at kind of rising in the corporate ladder. She's very motivated, but she can't seem to stop being awkward or putting her foot in her mouth. And you feel kind of bad for her because she's trying really hard. One of the notes is a reminder to herself that she shouldn't get jokes because Max prefers it when she's too dumb to get the jokes. And she shouldn't vent any of her problems to them because the corporate bigwigs don't care about her problems. (laughs) But Max wants only one thing, so she writes the word obey on a post-it note and tacks it up with the others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this whole, it's it's interesting because this whole, you know, the post-it notes on the computer, I mean, that's a very 80s thing. You know, the motivations, you know, it's just like, you know, 
teamwork and all that. I mean, that mm-hmm. was big in the 80s and early 90s, and they use that here. But then this is a very sad version of that because it's all so of sad. the notes are just so sad and like, don't be too clever and save it for your diary. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Definitely giving you insight into Selena and that she's got definitely got some uh, some self-esteem issues. Yeah. She can hear people outside cheering for Max's speech. And the phone rings and she just lets it ring, which, big mood. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has this, this sense that she's forgetting something. What is it that she is uh, forgetting there, Pax? She's forgetting Max's speech. <laughs> yep. She had written the speech and then neglected to give it to Max. Which, to be fair, he also neglected to make sure he had it, but, you know. I was about to say, to be fair, that's on him. I mean, he should have gotten the speech. (laughs) Yeah, but he definitely sounds like one of those people who is used to everything being done for him. Exactly, right. So she face palms and thinks again to herself, she's the biggest corn dog of them all. (laughs) Corn dog. Drink. (laughs) (laughs) We'd be smashed. I know, you're going to be hammered if you do the (laughs) corn dog drink. And so she says, I'm a lightweight. I am not a drinker. Chapter 3, Scene 2 Max couldn't let it go. He was not the sort of man to wait. He had to have the mayor's okay, and he wanted it now. If the mayor wouldn't give it to him the easy way, he'd just have to take it any way he could. I have enough signatures, he said, still smiling, from Shrek employees alone, to warrant a recall of a mayor who isn't doing his job. He graciously motioned for the mayor to precede him onto the dais. That's not a threat, he added. Just simple math. So the the second scene is from Max's point of view, and he's stewing at having been shot down by the mayor. He doesn't want to go through the proper channels. He wants to have the okay now. At first, this next bit, I thought he was saying it to to Chip, but I think he's actually saying it to the mayor that he says, I have enough signatures from Shrek employees alone to warrant a recall of a mayor who isn't doing his job. That's not a threat, just simple math. Well, I have a surprise for you, Paxton, and and the listeners. I I can do a little simple math, too. Only just, but this is what I did. Uh, So according to NCSL.org, which is the National Conference of State Legislatures, recalling a mayor, the rules for it vary state by state, but it generally requires signatures equal from 15% to 35% of the number of people who voted. Some states even require 25% of the number of registered voters, not just the number who turned out. Hmm. I tried to find New York, but it actually wasn't listed on this page. And a quick Google search tells me that apparently recall of elected officials is not permitted in New York, at least not at the moment. A lot of people have been fighting for that. Here comes a little bit of math. So population of New York City is 8.6 million. And according to the New York Post, less than 20% of New York voters cast ballots in 2019. We'll do a little mathing. Gotham City has a population of about 10 million, which is nice. It helps my math. Nice, easy number. Nice round number. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) 20% of that is 4 million. So we'll take an... Hey, Lane cutting in. Embarrassingly, I have to re-record this bit of mathiness because I kept saying 20% so much that I did my calculations based on Gotham City having a population of 20 million when actually it is 10 million. So here's the updated figures. Okay, so population of Gotham is about 10 million. 20% of that would be 2 million, but we will remove 2 million of the original 10 million to account for people who are not yet voting age. So we'll bring that down to 8 million, and 20% of the people who voted would be 1.6 million. 
So the average number needed for the recall vote would be 20% of that 1.6 million who voted, and that would be 320,000. Max would need 320,000 Shrek employees to oust the mayor. So I think he's bluffing. Yeah, that's a that's a huge <laughs> bluff. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I love that you looked all that up uh, because I, that didn't even dawn on me that uh, <laughs> that has to be a bluff. There's no way it can't be. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently the mayor is pretty sure he's bluffing too because he says maybe, but you don't have an issue, Max, nor do you have a candidate. <laughs> so anyway. Um, they get up on stage with the Ice Princess, and it's five minutes before seven. And the mayor gets the mic and says, The man who's given this city so much is here to keep giving. Welcome Gotham's own Santa Claus, Max Shrek. So Max thinks that he's laying it on a little thick, but whatevs. <laughs> uh, he gets up to the podium and opens the portfolio, and there is no speech. He kind of grins and bears it. He's going to have to wing it, but he makes a mental note to take it out on Selena later, just in case you weren't sure if he was a good guy or not. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And the uh, and th- th- this happens in the movie, but in the movie, he doesn't remember her name. He calls her what's her name. <laughs> so he, he doesn't even call her by name in the movie. <laughs> oh, goodness. So Max gets up to the mic and says, Santa Claus, afraid not. I'm just a poor little schmo who got a little lucky and sue me if I want to give a little back. I only wish I could hand out more than just expensive baubles. In this season of Our Savior's Birth, British-UK spelling, I wish I could hand out world peace and unconditional love wrapped in a big bow. I mean, talk about laying it on thick. Oh, Wasn't yeah. he just... <laughs> so thick. <laughs> he was just criticizing the mayor of that, and then he just he doubles, doubles down on it. Oh, yeah. Chapter 3, Scene 3. Max wanted to give everyone a present wrapped in a big bow. Oh, but you can murmured the squat man beneath the umbrella. Oh, but you will. He opened the ornate pocket watch that he held, a little rusted perhaps, but still elegant, and it kept perfect time. Time? It was one minute till. Time to close the umbrella. And then at the very end, watching from nearby is a squat man with an umbrella, and he checks his pocket watch. It's one minute before seven, and time to close the umbrella, whatever that means. (laughs) Uh, and at the end of this, uh, like you mentioned him throwing out the uh, the gifts and everything, and, and it it clears up a lot of a little bit of stuff. Like I always thought watching the movie, uh, I always wondered like what do the gifts come from? Like are they are they like things from the store that haven't sold that he had his employees <laughs> box up and throw out there? I'm like I was for some reason I was always fascinated. What like what's he wrapping up there? Because no one Max, I'm like he's not going to give away stuff. So I mean it's got to be like overstock or something. And the book pretty much just says that it's like stuff they ordered too much of and they just wrapped it up and like write off <laughs> kind of stuff. So I was like ah, I knew it. I knew he would. Yeah. <laughs> like overstock or, or items that have been returned. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Chapter four. Scene one. Alfred managed to skirt the last few happy shoppers as Max Shrek launched into his speech. The man was speaking absolute drivel, and the crowd was actually cheering him on. Oh well, the butler thought. It probably had something to do with the spirit of Christmas. He supposed he could be a little more charitable as well. Still, he was happy to be leaving this madhouse before it became any worse. We're moving on to chapter four. So it starts out from Alfred's point of view. So Max Shrek launches into a speech and Alfred, he's just kind of getting back to the Rolls Royce and is dismayed to find a parking ticket. The nerve. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) And I love that he calls the cops the constabler. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, yes. He's so British. (laughs) He is. So uh, at that moment, the 
crowd's cheers redouble and, you know, that gets Alfred's attention. He looks back at them and he can see that this enormous Christmas present. And at first I wasn't sure if it was floating along or if it was a balloon or what, but it's actually a float. Right. The clock strikes seven. Uh, Alfred grabs the parking ticket and much to his relief, he's getting ready to, to leave. He's he's about done Christmas shopping. He's done. Ready to go back to Wayne Manor. I was, I was wondering why... Alfred's parked on the street. There's got to be like a private lot or something like he can park in. I, I was surprised he's just parked in the square, like in, on the street where anyone can get to the Rolls Royce. And what member of the constabulary would run those plates, realize right. that it belongs to Bruce Wayne, who probably funds 30% of the police force. <laughs> totally. And writes him a ticket. Yeah, it's probably some like rookie that's out to make a quota. <laughs> and yeah. he's just like, I'm just, I'm just going to give this fancy Rolls Royce a ticket. And then he finds out who it's going to be. And it's like, oops, my bad. <laughs> Chapter four, scene two. Max's mind went blank when he saw the box. It looked like a present the size of a house. And not a small house either. Great idea, the mayor remarked. For the first time tonight, Max could hear genuine admiration in the politician's voice. But not mine, Max had to admit. He had to get on with his speech. Or did he? The way the crowd was cheering now, he doubted if they could hear anything else he would say. He looked forward to the edge of the stage where his son had moved to hand out the presents to the crowd. But the first of the gifts had fallen from Chip's hands to land on top of the sewer grate before the podium. Chip stood, frozen, watching the giant present make its way through the square toward them. The next scene is from Max's point of view. So Max is just kind of staring at this Christmas box that looks to be the size of a house. The mayor compliments him on it, but Max is like, uh, that's not mine. <laughs> and apparently, I'm kind of surprised there wasn't a callback to, what, two years earlier? Three years earlier when uh, Joker brought some festivities into the city and just about poisoned half of Gotham. Right. So. Now, good point. Yeah, <laughs> they totally should have been like, uh-oh. <laughs> or yeah. some, some kind of, at least Gordon or someone should have been like, we've been here before. Yeah, they, they got over that wariness really quick. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Chip, who's oblivious of what's going on, he starts handing out those presents that we talked about, but he finally notices the giant gift box. And in his surprise, he kind of drops them and some of them fall on top of the sewer grate. And that leads us to the next scene that is uh, from Penguin's point of view. Chapter 4, Scene 3. What was this? A small wrapped gift had fallen upon the grating, right above his vantage point. The squat man chuckled. Deck the halls, he whispered. How generous of them, and how appropriate. For he was about to give all of Gotham City a present of his very own. And he contemplates on how generous it is for Gotham to give him a present, one of these that fell through the cracks of the grate, because he's about to give him a present of his very own. <laughs> it, it was such a mustache twirling it really bit. Was. Like, yeah, like a, rubbing his hands together. His flippers. <laughs> he has flippers. <laughs> so, yeah, just very... The, the writing style of this just seems to be very mustache twirling. So. Yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very pulpy. And uh, like uh, at the end of this, uh, it's funny because I thought this this was a callback. Like the penguin says at the end, "Deck the halls." At the very end of the chapter, mm -hmm. and I totally thought that was a call out because I know there's an old movie that Danny DeVito was in with Matthew Broderick called "Deck the Halls." So I thought, oh, they're totally calling back to that. But my memory was way off because I looked it up. And it was in 2006. It was 
my memory was way <laughs> off. That movie, I guess I, I just remember the VHS cover, and so maybe, I, or maybe I, I remember the DVD cover, and it just looked old fashioned. So maybe I just thought it was older than it was. But. Yeah, this book is going to be a pretty quick read because it's the, you know the chapters are so short, and um, which is interesting because it's written by the same person who did the first novelization, and those chapters were a bit lengthier. So yeah, they were, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm not sure if. If it was his idea to change up the format or if like the publisher kind of asked that. So I don't know. I can respect an author who wants to play around with formatting. That's all good. Yeah. Chapter 5, Scene 1. It was all part of the job, Commissioner Gordon thought, but he didn't have to be happy with it, especially when the crowd grew as large as it did for the Shrek's annual Christmas giveaway. There was always the potential for disaster when there were this many people in this confined to space. And then Shrek insisted on letting his son toss out freebies to the crowd. But was even that bad enough? No. Now that publicity-mad store owner had to come up with this giant gift gimmick without even informing the police about it beforehand. We start chapter 5, and the first scene is Gordon's point of view. Gordon is unhappy, I know, gasp, about the (laughs) size of the crowd. (laughs) But... In a city of 10 million, my guess is that crowd control is something that comes up fairly often. You know, like holiday events and sports events. I think you know, Gotham has several sports teams, one of them being the Gotham Knights, the I Knights, believe. Yeah. So surely crowd control isn't something that you know he's unfamiliar with. He's just kind of not about it. Yeah, and it's interesting that Gordon is even out there in the first place. I mean, he's right. the commissioner. Why is he out in a car for crowd control? Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. He's, he should be above all this. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's hands-on, you know. <laughs> he wants to be out there in the field. <laughs> so he can complain about it later. So he can complain about it later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm unhappy about being here, but damn it, I'm here. <laughs> but I'm here. <laughs> so um, he sees this big gift coming, and he's pretty upset because the police hadn't been warned about it. So maybe he's thinking back to uh, Joker shenanigans that, you know, maybe unexpected giant things are maybe not the best thing to do in Gotham City without some kind of warning. So, <laughs> but he's just, he's happy it'll be over in a few minutes and he's cocooned inside his cruiser. And, but he starts kind of looking at the box and under the box, he can see what he thinks are perhaps motorcycle wheels, like three or four motorcycles, as well as some walking feet. Gordon shakes his head and decides that he'd better call the other units in the area to coordinate crowd control tactics because he's starting to smell something fishy going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, was any of this in the movie? Yeah, uh, none of this part. Um, we got pretty much uh, the guys on the stage seeing the, the present. And I think you saw Alfred in the in the crowd. And I think you get a glimpse of Gordon out there, but you don't get him in the car you know, waxing about like how annoyed he is that uh, he wasn't told about this giant present. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter five, scene two. Corn dog. She would never get anywhere if she just sat around and moped. If Max hadn't taken his speech, it was her job to bring it down to him. Selena grabbed the envelope that contained her carefully worded season's greetings and headed for the elevator. She just hoped she wasn't too late. Uh, the next scene, back to Selena and her corn dogs. Um, we just learn enough that she decides that instead of moping, she needs to get the lead out and try to get the speech down to Max. So that's pretty much all that was. Uh, then we're back to Gordon. Chapter 5, Scene 3. Gordon stopped talking into the police radio. Gotham Plaza had gone crazy. The giant package burst open. Three men on motorcycles roared out right into the crowd. People tried to run, screaming, 
frantic to get away from the growling engines. And a fourth motorcyclist jumps the railing and lands in the middle of the crowd. And the crowd is so densely packed that many can't escape the motorcycle. So people are kind of getting run over. Oh no, I guess uh, I guess I'm surprised that with them being just motorcycles, people wouldn't kind of do a little mob justice and pull them off of the motorcycle. I don't know. Yeah, it might have been too sudden for people. They might still be in like the oh crap, what's going on? But then with a few more minutes or a few more moments, they might be like, okay, this jerk's gonna get pulled off this bike. Right. It just seemed. Yeah, you could totally see where maybe at first they're like, oh, this is part of the show, you know, and like, you know, some of the, some of the, even because it's such a big crowd, even though some people get hit over there, some people further away would be like, oh, look, they got acrobats. It's part of the show. <laughs> the, the acrobats crack me up. Yeah. So the top of the box opens and out come five acrobats and they manage, and I'm picturing them, of course, in like glittering leotards. Mm -hmm. So they come out. And they manage to take down a mounted patrolman. Uh, they wreck a soup kitchen. And then they head toward the tree. And and this is the part that, that gets me. Apparently four motorcyclists and five acrobats are too much for the GCPD. Yeah. Because, God, because Gordon <laughs> shouts into the radio, what are you waiting for? The signal. <laughs> yep, that was my thought exactly. That the first thing he thinks to do as soon as anything out of the ordinary happens, get the signal up. Because GCPD can't handle it. <laughs> like Four <laughs> motorcyclists and five acrobats. <laughs> yep. Just this like, is a job for Batman. Uh, it's clearly like the whole GCPD's out there because Gordon's out there too. I mean, they they should be able to handle that, but I guess they gotten oh soft since Batman yeah. showed up. Yeah, just let Batman do it. He he does all right. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Put the call in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm all cozy here in my squad car with my coffee. Yeah, that really got me, and I'm I'm curious to see later like how that plays out in the movie. Was there anything more dramatic? Because I guess after, you know, some of the other Batman villains we know about and some like what the Joker did in the, the first movie, it just, I guess, seems a little anticlimactic to have acrobats and guys on motorcycles. And I don't know, I, I guess that seemed a little anticlimactic compared to like what you could expect under that giant present. Yeah, yeah, I guess in a way, but also I, I kind of love the idea of circus people and criminals and just how it was handled. I thought that was just a neat little twist. Of mm -hmm. uh, It was a cool idea. I mean, uh, I know that's a thing in the Batman comics. And uh, so they. Th I like how it was realized here. I, I think it was a neat idea. I mean, there is a, a precedent for acrobats being able to kick ass. I mean, the first couple Robins were acrobats. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> thoughts on the first few chapters it's hewing pretty close to the movie and uh like it's got this very similar tone um i like in where it's filling in some story stuff we get some stuff with gordon we get some stuff with the mayor and shrek uh shrek is great um i think he's a great character but uh i, I like where it's filling in some of the stuff and it, it's an interesting story so far i mean we're, we're five chapters in and we haven't seen batman but mm -hmm. uh but i'm i'm enjoying what i'm reading <laughs> yeah but to be fair, five chapters is like 12 pages. So. True. Yeah. To be fair, they are <laughs> tiny chapters. <laughs> yeah. But we have seen Gordon. We've seen Alfred. So it, they're teasing it out. They're they're not leaving us hanging too long. So yeah. I am not yet loving like the really mustache twirling. <laughs> Maybe it's probably because it contrasts so much with the book I just finished with uh, right. The Ultimate Evil. 
Um, so I might just have to get back into that mindset of okay, a little bit, little bit more of the camp. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm I'm enjoying it. I mean, I don't dislike it, but it, it's just kind of a different gear that I need to get used to again. It's definitely a tonal shift that you're you're gonna have to flip that switch to be able to get to it because it is it is camp mustache twirling, and it, you got to get back into that kind of mindset. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we go from baby killers in the one book now to a killer baby, so it's I, I need to turn around. Right, right. And and at one point here, the penguin tries to kill babies. So I mean, oh, so, <laughs> so it comes full circle. So it will come full circle, but it does it the campy kind of way. So, oh, <laughs> uh, well, that is about all I have for the first few chapters. This was fun. I, I look forward to going through this book with you. Yeah, yeah. This is a good one to go through because there's a lot of fun stuff. I guess for next episode, we'll hit a chapter six through ten. Sounds good. Well, that's it for, for this episode, Gotham Nights. Until next time, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Mm-hmm.